I'm usually the one that lights the candles on Sunday, and I didn't. I just did. So, you know, sometimes in our spiritual life, we just forget to get the candle going. So the choice is that we can feign that, you know, nobody will notice, or we can say, I can't feign it, I gotta fan it. I've got to get ignition. I've got to light the lamp. So one of the things that we'll be looking at today with regard to a title that you see on this, Wise Men Have 2020 Vision. They saw something greater than a candle lit than perhaps a menorah that they would have been historically privy to. They saw an illumination that was divinely presented to them personally, and they needed to respond to it as well. Many obviously ignored it. They responded. We want to be in this season wiser than we were last season. And we want to be those who are able to say, when the obvious is evident, hmm, my wick is smoldering, my bick's out of butane, I need help. I need to get things reignited, rekindled. I need to have his light. And that's one of the things that we would say, at least as far as this goes, today is a wise evaluation. Had I not done that, I think that a majority may have just said, ah, give the guy a break. It's just an oversight. Some may not even had any attention drawn to it at all, because sometimes oil can run out. But I did choose to make it an illustration of what a new season represents, in which something that still needs to be done isn't overlooked. And maybe it is humiliating. Maybe it is humbling. I think it's a little bit of both for me, because I'm, I'm generally here the earliest. I'm the guy that lights those candles. And when somebody is doing that predictably and faithfully, then when there's a gap in that, guess what? It doesn't get done. It doesn't mean it wouldn't have got done. But it does, in my opinion, give an opportunity to say, let's do what ought to be done this year. Let's really take even just this curious year's numeration, 2020, that we have God's vision on our life and on the work that he desires to do in us and obviously still yet to accomplish through the church. That's what I'd like to anchor this with. Before moving into this, let's pray. And then what we're going to do is receive some passages that I want you to put into your heart. Lord, we ask for your blessings on our time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. 
and your spirit is person. It is the beautiful empowerment to us from you, Father, and from heaven that grants illumination into your word, realization of your presence, empowerment in the necessity of expressing biblically and in the discipline of being Christians, believers, who you are, what you've done, and what people need to know. So even right now, we would ask for you to fill us. Perhaps there are some that are as dry as an empty oil lamp and need to be filled. Perhaps they're full, but their wick is smoldering. Something is snuffing it out. Relight, Lord. May we give you authority and, and really just have that purposed that we're not going to feign, we're not going to pretend, we're going to be honest and cry out in need. Thank you for granting us through your word clarity that is eternal and that grounds us when so much is misleading and deceptive. And considering you in this, Lord, may we see you just triumphant in our daily life. Thank you for hearing us and speaking to us even now in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to anchor you in some previous voiced scriptures before we move into our main text. I would like you, and men would have been familiar with this yesterday, to be able to record or remember from 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 3.16 and 17. Because where we are going in the Gospel of Matthew concerning the wise men is that they were anchored in the word of God. For them, in ancient times, they had been recipients of the word of God. For we hear from them quotes of prophetic books that were relevant to the occurrence in which Jesus was born and they would find him. And the wonderful thing about that is it gives us as well an anchor point to say what God has indeed foreordained and what he has spoken of in advance shall come to pass in the perfect timing of his will. It's always a mystery as to when that unfolds and how it's ultimately satisfied. We get older, we get more experienced, sometimes we get impatient. But even yesterday as I was with the men, and, and many of them speaking from a current, in-the-moment experience that they could share relevant to the teaching in this section, they were anchoring themselves and what they were sharing in the word. They were able to have in their anchoring discernment with regard to doctrine because 
They were wise men, voicing truth, anchored in the understanding of Scripture, not the misleading, not the deception that we will also find ourselves being warned against, but in the authentic understanding of the truth of God's word. That's being a wise man and a wise woman to understand what is of God and what isn't of God. In the same context, in Second Peter, which we have visited before, I will bring you back into attention. In the 21st verse of chapter 1, actually I'm going to pick it up in verse 20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. You're to know this. It's not of any private interpretation. For it continues, and I think it's very parallel to where we just left off. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been work at work in the lives of men who are working, and not just simply any men, but holy men. However, interesting as well, because we will look back even further in the timeline of history, is God can use others outside what you would say the intimate knowledge of God who are yet a part of some communal work by God to convey truth. God has that authority. When he uses people outside, if you would, the Judaic system who handled the oracles of God, or even the church system, God is demonstrating his sovereignty. He has authority over all life. And though it is only for a moment or for an exclamation mark to something that God is doing, ultimately his desire is that every person would have a personal encounter and relationship with him. But these are two areas of scripture that we ought to be for this year, 2020 vision as wise men and women anchored in. Because they establish us in the importance, as I said earlier, of the year of the Bible, that you are going to say, this is that year. Not, I just came from that year. You're going to say, this is the year of the Bible, and I will make it relevant, and I will be disciplined in the reading of it, and I am going to honor God through it. What happens when we do that? Vision becomes clear. Hope becomes real. And so one of the things that right now as we go back into Scripture, and we're going to be anchoring ourselves in Matthew chapter 2. You can turn there. is to see how these guys weren't just wise guys, but they were wise men. And that extraordinarily, they served a purpose that ultimately was spoken of way back when. Where's the way back when? 
There's a couple of areas of scripture in the Old Testament that I as well want to anchor you in. So one of those, before we move into Matthew 2, is going to be in the prophetic book of Daniel. It has eloquence. It also has, at times, some complexities in the penning of this book. But what I want to be able to share with you is that in Daniel, in what is the ninth chapter, beginning in verse 24, and you'll see why this has relevance, is basically the hidden prophecy of the work of God in delivering Messiah to the people of God and ultimately to the world. In this particular area of prophetic books, it was given to Daniel in a very difficult time for Israel and Judah and in particular for him and his life. For what we do know of the book of Daniel is that he was a wise man. He actually entered into Babylonian captivity based on prophecy that had been spoken of, that he would have been very well aware of. There were men of his day in advance of his birth that he, by oral tradition and understanding the written scriptures of those times, he would have been astutely aware that what was prophesied would come to pass, but he would not necessarily have known how God was going to use him in a time in which he would be brought and caught into that prophecy. And that was the captivity of Judah and Jerusalem, basically Israel proper, when he was just a young guy. And he needed to be somebody anchored in the word that he would be able to say, this is that which God has shown us. So from 24 to the close, and in particular, it will say in verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Well, what happened in advance of that? Well, from the advance of that, is that Jerusalem would be built in verse 25, and then Messiah the Prince would have seven weeks and, 70, and 62 weeks, and the streets shall be built up again in the wall and even the troublesome times. And the idea here is that it speaks of a time in which God would do what? Introduce to the Jewish people whom they had waited for, Messiah. It speaks both of his birth, the accuracy of it, and ultimately his crucifixion. This would have come in precision to the word of prophecy that Daniel spoke because of the Spirit of God. But there's another amazing passage that concerns these wise men who traveled from afar to be used by God in the announcement of the Son of God. So go all the way back to Numbers And this is fascinating because it's a prophecy that's uttered by a guy named Balaam who was a scallywag. He was pagan. He was hired by adversaries 
of the Jewish people having come out of Egypt, and he was hired to curse the people of God. God wouldn't allow him to do it. But what he would not allow Balaam to do in the curse, he would permit Balaam to do in the blessings. And we won't go into that full story. But one of the remarkable things historically is what Balaam was allowed to pronounce. So this is the time of Moses right now. And this is where we'll pick it up. One of the prophecies begins remarkably with this. 24. His king shall be higher than Agag, and his kingdoms shall be exalted. Again, it's poetic language, but it's speaking of Messiah. It's speaking of God. God brings him out of Egypt. This will have correlation with another scripture given to us in Matthew 2. He has strength like a wild ox, and he shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion he shall rouse, who shall rouse him. Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. And now take a look right now on what's considered what is the fourth prophecy, and it's verse 17, and it says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near, a star shall come out of Jacob, a scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of tumult. This is where the prophecy concerning what the wise men in part will use to collaborate together this phenomenon known as this star in the east that literally will engage them in the ministry of pursuing faith in pleasing a God that they yet were not fully acquainted with or intimate towards. But something that God did through the scriptures and their understanding of Jewish history and very likely their acquisition of the scrolls that did exist in copies in those days had somehow come into their hands. By what means? There are two sources, but I think the most intelligent one is from Babylon, where Daniel ultimately had been placed in captivity. And it is interesting because as you look at a map, and it identifies these kings as from the east, these wise men, princes from the east, it is very likely from that area that they came because that is most eastern. And it would be in which the infusion of Jewish history would have been what? Very evident. Why? Well, as you've understood the book of Daniel before, there was a king who was responsible for ultimately the ransacking of both Judah and Israel, or Jerusalem proper, in two raids. Daniel was taken from Judah in the first one with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But there were others, too, that came along both on that 
if you would, captivity and the second one. And so with that came the entire history of Judaism, the work of God. And in that time, as these men were raised up, and Daniel in particular, who was found favorable among them, he was raised to be a personal counselor to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar didn't obey everything Daniel said, and he paid for it dearly. But there was a time in which, by virtue of his disobedience, and a time in which God gave him the disciplining hand as his sovereign God. And the passage of seven years, Nebuchadnezzar came out of a time of basically being disciplined by God to acknowledge the Holy One of Israel and proclaimed him to be the sovereign God, even over all gods, and in particular the God that he at one time served. It's a fascinating story. And what I'm saying is that it's the word of God that anchored these men, that gave them the confidence to head out in faith in a land that very likely, if we're talking about Babylon, if we're talking about that central area in Iraq, in that eastern direction, then their pilgrimage would have been about 700 miles to satisfy the provocation of God through that light that could be anchored all the way back here through both oral tradition and manuscripts. This would have been the easier manuscripts to have obtained because it represented the first five books of Moses, the Pentateuch. And they were wise enough to be able to say, this correlates with what we're seeing. But in talking about this, that's 700 miles to us, no big deal. We've traveled that far for sure. I don't know if I'd want to do that in sandals and a camel. My thoughts, at least as far as in plugging in numbers, is... At the minimum, you're with camels and fleas. At the minimum, that's if camels are cooperating and the entourage is flowing and there's nothing that is getting in your way. The minimum would be over a month to travel that far from possibly what we would call Persia Central or that Baghdad area. Actually, Baghdad and Babylon separated about 100 miles, but somewhere within that vicinity is where they came from. And so the reason that I give you this narrative right now is to make relevant the certainty that they had on this pilgrimage and how God was going to use them royally to present with absolute inarguable evidence that Messiah had come, the very one that Daniel prophesied, the very one that even Balaam was allowed to give an ascertaining vision. It's not yet, and it's not near, but this will be how you will know, even using somebody like him. And so as the scriptures unfolded, Faith was allowed to be, what, exercised.
The point that I also will make on this is that as the scriptures unfold in your life, faith will be required to be exercised. I hope you're ready for that in this season. Let's move back then to Matthew chapter 2. And you may say, how are you going to get us out in time for lunch? The Lord shall deliver you. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So this is after he was born. The previous occasion we were when he was born. This is after he was born. I want you to understand this so that you're able to not kick over cute little Christmas scenes of the sheep and the shepherd and the wise men all having a wonderful time in the stable made of wood. That's not the point. The point is to be able to rightly divide these particular perspectives historically by looking at this for what it reveals. It's time after his birth. And it's just saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, this is only a question seeking a more precise direction, but it's also being used as an utterance from these men to the ears of the elite council of Herod, Herod himself. Where is he? For we have seen, notice this, his star. It's not just a star, it's his star in the east and have come to worship him. From 700 miles plus away, they see this anomaly, this celestial aberration. It's so extraordinary that it could not be misconstrued for any other thing but a divine sign, and they pick it up. They're not even questioning it. A couple of things that you ought to consider, and that's this. It's either an extraordinary celestial star that God has allowed to be evidently seen, or it may be on the other thing related to this study, a work in which the Shekinah glory of God is as of a star and lights the way for them. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What if for them, they are living in the reality of having handled the scriptures of God, having been recipients of the oracles of God, and they are those who say, in faith, we will find out about God. They are saying, it would seem to me, without question, in declaration, he's the king of the Jews. See, it's more simply than wisdom. It's knowledge that they have. But you also might be reminded of a classic Proverbs, maybe good for all of us this year. In 9 verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Could they have received the knowledge of the Holy One and thereby gleaned understanding because they had fear of the Lord? I would suggest yes. And I would also say 
we as well can become wise men, wise women, wisdom prevailing in our families and in our vocations, if it is indeed the fear of the Lord, which is our beginning of wisdom. Not what you heard from Aunt Mabel or even your father years ago, but from the beginning point of today, the wisdom of God given to us. Let me pursue something else in addition to this, which I think, again, is just a good motivation. If it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom and that from the knowledge of the Holy One there is understanding, then let this be perhaps another perspective. The fear of the Lord is to revere the Lord. Fear of the Lord is to revere the Lord. Revering the Lord is to be drawing near to the Lord. Revering means to be, as we've said before, in awe of him. There will be a time in which men will be afraid of him, in fear. But this connotes not judgment, but the compelling evidence that says we need to draw near to God. He offers, I believe, in Isaiah 1, 18, 19, the compelling evidence to that prophet, draw near to me. Let us reason together. He invites us to be in counsel with him. Why? So that we're not counseled by the world. Satan wants to counsel you. The secular world system wants to counsel you. Politics wants to counsel you. News stations wants to want to counsel you. But God says, your best counsel lays in the counsel of the Holy One with me, according to the scriptures of the divine spirit of God. Not simply by, oh, this sounds like a good thing to write, but by men, holy men, who were under the empowerment and unction of the spirit of God to pen the truth of God's word. As we advance, may I suggest as well, seven things to consider before I move just a little bit further in this area. How do you draw near to God? So pin these down. You know them. I'm sure you know them. Prayer. Start your day off with prayer. Close your day off with prayer. Oh, do what Daniel did too. Pray at noontime as well. That sounds like breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Great, do it. You've qualified it. Do it. If that's the best you can do, do it. For some, it's all you may be able to do. Do it. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then ask God, is there a way, Lord, that I can expand that a bit more meaningfully, deeper? And I get in my heart the sense that he'll say, I was hoping you'd ask. I was just hoping you'd ask. Because I've got a beautiful sunrise that I'd like you to see. I've got a hanging suspended moon that will captivate your heart. I've got so many billions of stars out there that are going to be twinkling for you. I've suspended many rain clouds that you would not get your head wet. I've given you rain clouds that you can see I bring water upon the earth and that I'm able to quench your thirsty soul. Prayer. May this be a year that as wise men, as wise women, we will say, 
breakfast, lunch, and dinner is awesome, but I want to go deeper in order to draw nearer, that I might have an even greater sense of the fear of the Lord, not what he's going to do to me, but what he has for me. Secondly, as we have emphasized, reading his word. How much do I read? How much do you want to read? How much do you spend in other books reading? All of us have sources of receiving information. So the question would be, is there a way to move some of that over or out of our way to receive more of what is in the way? In the way? That's what the early church was called. It was called the way. So if that reference was ever used in the way, it wasn't God in the way. It was a people group that were on their way, the way. Jesus declared himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. So one of the things that we can say is that in reading his word, we will find his way regarding what we're to do. It's the means of drawing near. And so whatever might be per se blocking that, stalling you, distracting you, all of us could probably say, all right, I'm moving it out of the way so that I can be in the way, so that I can hear from Yahweh. If he's the way, the truth, and the life, I don't want just the truth and the life. I want to have the way that I'm to go. Understood. Thirdly, to be drawing near to God means that you are hearing the word. What happens when we hear the word? Romans 10, 17 declares that faith comes by hearing and hearing from the word of God. So whenever you have the opportunity to hear the word, tune into it. Take note of it. Two men that spoke in the Bible study yesterday were men who were on the way, in the way, and they heard the voice of God through teachings that were on the radio. One of them was able to, to discern that a false doctrine was being presented. How did he know? He spends time in the Word. He made comparative notes. He theologically assessed that what was being spoken of was up to the last point compelling, exciting, and then all of a sudden with the direction and voicing of this one pastor or teacher, whatever he was, false doctrine. That was a great revelation for our men to hear yesterday, that you can get that close to believing it, to buying it, to packaging it for yourself and realize one thing disclosed was the evidence that it was false doctrine. It was a great revelation. So two men yesterday who handled the word of God dispensed the word of God to give wisdom to us in the fear of the Lord. Hearing the word of God. So may I encourage us even this year in being wise men, wise women, wise families. Take opportunity to fill this place. It doesn't matter to me whether there's one or two. I'm just saying that the difference in my life was made when the priority of being in the central areas of teaching and especially in a place that offers an extraordinary, in my opinion, comfortability in receiving the word. Give us the dilemma of, oh my goodness, these kids are packing the place out. There's no more chairs. What if in the year of the Bible, God says it's the year of the church? As you prioritize this, I will do a building work in this. 
But again, it doesn't matter to me any more than it mattered to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, any more than it mattered to Jesus, any more than it mattered to Moses. In other words, those men, we ought to be those who say, regardless of what any other person does, I'm anchored in the word, and I'm going to get as much of the word as I am able to. And I will identify with the people who are tracking in that word with me. It's a challenge. Can we do it? I think we can. A football team is not made up in strength by the component parts that aren't on the field. They're made up in strength by assembling as very unique component parts into one unit, a team. And so God does that through teamwork. Wise men from the East came as a team of three and an entourage probably of many. Their strength was in what they were saying together, one voice and three particular messages. Team up, call people, grab your Bibles, grab people who need to have the Bible. Verse four, when you hear the word of God, be able to receive, be able to say, I receive, I receive. So yesterday during Riv's teachings, taking us through Second Timothy chapter three, four, we were in four or three, three. I was able to say with other men and the voicings of those who were presenting just really good perspectives, I receive, I receive. Just always say I receive. Because reception means that you're not distancing yourself from what God has wanted to speak to you. Well, I'm not sure if he was speaking to you. What if you just honored the word of God and said, it's speaking. Why am I able to... Why am I able to say, well, this is irrelevant to me? What if I just say, it's relevant? Maybe not in this moment, but it might very well be relevant in the next second, minute, hour, day, year. I receive. Wise men, wise women, receiving the word of God. Fifth point, applying the word of God. Once you receive it, you have to ask God how he wants it applied. And then when the application happens, meaning that you have now a blueprint, you have to act in obedience. Some of us get up to the application, and we've got the flow chart going, but then all of a sudden to, to move into stepping into that act of obedience, we stall. Because there's something that suggests in our mind it's going to be a long pilgrimage, 700 miles on camel with fleas, desert, possibly no water, out of our comfort zone. These wise men finished up the journey to make what? The sovereign God, Lord of their lives, with the announcement and confirmation that Messiah had come. They could have turned away. They could have, but they didn't turn away. And even to the latter moment of accomplishing that mission, they had to listen to the voice of God in order to escape the treachery of Herod, which was not made known to them by Herod, but by the voice of God. So when we have application, when we've made the effort to hear from the word of God, and when we exercise in obedience, we are saved. There's a saving work that God does. He saves us personally. He saves us interpersonally among each other. He saves families and children and marriages. 
he saves through the act of obedience, which honors him, which declares in our act of obedience one thing, I fear the Lord. I fear the consequence if I am not obedient to the Lord, not one that he's loving against me personally, for he is a corrective father who shows his love to me. But if I can avoid correction, wouldn't you? I, I love to avoid correction at all costs. It makes the cruise easier. Whenever I hear the term correction, it implies either something that comes out of a closet with holes bored in it, you know, or a woodshed with a couple of switches. I mean, I see imagery linked to both my early childhood and also as well what I knew vocationally. And what I also learned in the locker rooms of sports, coaches back then disciplined you very firmly. Totally remember that. Receiving and applying and obeying. And when that is done, then guess what? You're an open vessel for sharing. When you find yourself sharing, you will have been in compliance with ultimately what these wise men did. They're basically sharing to Herod, made known to all of Jerusalem and ultimately to the house of Joseph with Mary, Messiah has come. In other words, confirming what Mary had heard, what Joseph had heard. Do you know what it's like to hear a fresh word? Do you realize that there is very likely two years that had passed from his birth to the time of the wise men coming upon them in his childhood? And what you need to understand is that as you move with God, as you become a Bible student, a theologian, one who's disciplined in prayer, you become a voice piece. You become a fresh word to somebody who's weary in their soul. And as you desire to be refreshed, they may very likely be hoping that you have the word of God to refresh them in a time of being in a deep season of drought. And it can happen. Those are seven things that I would like you to consider in this year of the Bible, being wise men with 2020 vision, that you might see God. It says here, and when he had gathered all the chief priests, the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem, of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who shall shepherd my people, Micah 5, 2. Another prophet, he was contemporary to Isaiah. Now this is extraordinary, because these guys were in advance of Daniel. And it means this, Daniel was able to anchor himself on words that he would have been very aware of as a student of the word up to at least the age of 15. What you parents are doing in bringing your kids to church and praying with them, getting them Bibles, answering their questions, you're raising up the next generation of Daniels. And Daniel, by the way, was a young wise man. We don't necessarily know the age of these men, presumed to be wise men, magi from the East, 
But Daniel definitely was a young wise man. And he seems to have had, if you would, even a more pronounced stature of maturity than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They counsel all together, but Daniel seems to be the one that calls attention to the need. We need to pray, guys, because our heads are going to be lopped off tomorrow. The king's angry. We need to ask God for an answer. We need to desist on the defiling of our bodies and where we're now at, this secular world system that we've been brought into. We need to make a commitment that we will not be defiled by the world system. We're not going to take the king's food. But we will serve the king as under a higher authority, the king of kings, the lord of lords. But this is classic because it shows you that even here in this time, this word had come to pass, and these guys now saying, ah, we, we did see this. Uh, we had an understanding. Why would it have come out now? It's just like what we are talking about in our present day. The word of God has not changed. It suffers no error. The error are people who will not suffer through the discipline of reading the word. And I don't mean, oh, it's painful. The suffering means a long, patient endeavor to stay at it and to not quit on it. That's the idea. Long suffering means a patient endeavor to stay with it, not give up on it. So this is a prophecy. And this is coming from those who now are suspect about the motive of these wise men. And they're kind of figuring out, wait a second. Did he say king of the Jews? Wait, that's my spot. He doesn't like what he's hearing. Notice this. Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. Again, this gives us a clue. It says, he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed and behold the star which they had seen in the east went before them, went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. This reminds me of the rock that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And that rock is our God. That rock was a picture of, a type of Jesus. This almost seems to be in parallel what God would say is his glory upon his son, the Shekinah glory of God in Revelation to this pilgrimage that they're on, and they are not refuting it. The children of Israel had both two signs. When the tabernacle was taken down and the ark was on the move, they would be led by a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. It was the evidential work of God making provision for their safety and their journey. But when they heard the king, they had departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Are we rejoicing in the glory of God? Are we talking about a star? No. We can acknowledge the splendor of God in the stars that he has created, but are we rejoicing in the presence of God represented, I believe here accurately, his Shekinah glory. He has given his glory to his son. Are we rejoicing in that reality? Doing it again. 
Jesus would speak to the churches in Revelation, in particular to Ephesus. He says, I want you to return to your first love. Does anybody know and remember what and how motivational first love is? God obviously has an understanding that first love can vaporize, just like the mist off of a hot sidewalk. Gone. So he seeks to bring revival to us, and that's what he wants to do, both in marriages, parental relationships. He brings revival, but he says, how about starting first with me? How can you start secondarily with others when I'm the source of revival, when I bring glory to myself by what I do in restoring first love to you? Come back to me. And there isn't really anything, in my opinion, more remarkable than first love with God. It is so... It's just so altering. It changes everything about you feel towards anything, isn't it? So perhaps being wise men and wise women this year, we can say, Lord, if we have been talking about fear and revering, and if we've been talking about committing to the things which are important and will stand the test of time, though I only have a short time to stand in my time moment, I want to make you the love of my life. And in so doing, Lord, will you then just overwhelm the loves of my life? Being in love with the Lord, the love of my life, then God says, I'm so glad that we start with me first, and now I'm going to bring upon you love for them in measure, in measure. Well, at any rate, this is where they're at. The king is now going to dispatch ultimately in this regard a scheme to take Jesus out. But this is what I want to say here, closing. When they saw that star, they rejoiced exceedingly, great joy. And notice this. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary. His mother fell down and worshipped. Let's do that with our hearts and our minds and bodies. Let's fall down and worship. Not making a scene, I don't mean that. Let's not be afraid to bow the knee, bow the head, revere God. These men did in all of their regalia, and I'm sure that they looked exactly as they have been portrayed. Worshiping him, not worshiping Mary, not worshiping Joseph, not worshiping the town Bethlehem, worshiping him. And they opened up their treasures. They presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, myrrh. And I close simply to remind you, the gold represented his kingly authority. The frankincense represented his priestly authority. And the myrrh represented his prophetic sacrifice in dying for the sins of the world. It's a beautiful picture, but it is intensely anchored in the word of God. Just in what we read, just in what I believe is reasonable evaluation of these wise men. They're not wise guys. They're wise men. And not out of presumption, 
not out of second guessing, not out of incantations. They had been given the word of God. As the word of God has been given to you, let's be wise that we might see with his eyes, have vision for 2020. What better thing do you have to do than to become even better as believers, not in your own strength, but for the glory of God and in his power? Let's go ahead and stand. That's the word of God, and he is worthy of applause. And thank you for that encouragement. Lord, we ask for your blessings. We thank you for this day. Thank you for the worship band. What a pleasure and privilege to be able to hear the young generation present songs that are just elaborately penned, poetically on the mark, actually full of doctrine. And so we thank you for that. We thank you for taking a, allowing us to peek into your word and to be anchored in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and being able to say, Lord, that's what we want to be. We want to be anchored. And so thank you for doing that for us. Thank you for the patience of these, your people, who have sat attentive, been very kind. I believe they're exercising the very things that have been taught, receiving application of it, and now willing to be pronouncers of it. And so bless them in the gifts, the treasuries that you have endowed them, Lord. We give that to you. We do. And so may we become a very flourishing work of the Spirit, not to be impressive to anyone but you, but because we are pressing in for you. In Jesus' name, amen.